Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, September 26, 2018, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this conversation, acclaimed Civil War scholars John F. Marzalek, Craig L. Simons, and Harold Holzer discuss the political, humanitarian, and historical perspectives of the Civil War's 1862 Battle of Antietam. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be back. I guess it's really the fall season now. Um, And we are here to explore a watershed moment in the Civil War and in American history. And I'm going to start with two of our favorite characters. Because on September 15th, 1862, about 156 years ago, Abraham Lincoln sent a telegram to George McClellan, who you see on the left, destroy the rebel army if possible. Two days and one battle later, even though the result was widely reported in the press as a major Union victory, the commander-in-chief, Lincoln, issued no congratulation or commendation either to his commander or his troops. Instead, what he did over the next week um, endured in both history and American literature, interestingly, and demonstrated just how crucial the engagement at Antietam was. In short order, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, suspended the writ of habeas corpus nationwide, hectored the battle's winner, George McClellan, by saying, is it your purpose never to go into action again? Um, (laughs) Soon accusing him of overcautiousness and worse, and shared memorably with a Quaker leader his belief that America was going through a fiery trial ordained by God for some wise purpose of his own, mysterious and unknown to us. So it brought out quite a panoply of reactions in Abraham Lincoln. So we want to explore the battle that, in a sense, changed history. And my comrades in arms, John Marzalek and Craig Simons, are the perfect people to engage with. They've both written memorably about the war. It's great commanders. It's not so great commanders. Um, And um, it's most crucial engagements. And somehow the three of us have not yet gotten to Maryland in September 1862. So we are making up tonight for lost opportunities. So let's let's back up a bit. Um, Just to set some context quickly, spring spring of 1862, some pretty crucial things happened at uh, Hampton Roads and on the Virginia Peninsula. Why don't we just set the stage for what happens in Maryland. Me. Um, Well, certainly for the monitor in Merrimack. Sure. I'll give it to anyone but you. Well, what's interesting about the spring of 1862 was a springtime of hope for the Confederacy. I mean, there was still a general belief, a conviction, in fact, on the part of most Southerners, that this war was not only winnable, it was inevitable that the Confederacy would win its independence. They They won the first battle of the war at Bull Run. They'd had a good run. Uh, since that, they had won a number of victories. They felt confident. Um, 
then things began to go a little bit wrong. Um, but that confidence pretty much remained intact. Uh, the event that Harold refers to here in March of 1862, they had constructed this ironclad monstrosity built on the hull of the old USS Merrimack, which they rechristened the CSS Virginia. Uh, that uh, ship was neutralized with the arrival of the USS Monitor. And that's a kind of metaphor, too, because the Monitor was built from scratch, from a new design by an immigrant a genius engineer and designer named Erickson. And uh, the fact that the Union could build that in less than 100 days to counter kind of an ersatz patched together, build on top of an older ship uh, that the Confederacy had managed to cobble together, I think stands as a metaphor for the, the weaknesses and the strengths of each side. Um, and that became more evident as the spring wore on. That's a good, great point. I hadn't thought of that before. What I always think about is that the monitor was built in Greenpoint. So True. we take some regional pride here for <laughs> the USS True. monitor. But so it all, it also, peninsular campaign. It also sank, though, very quickly. It did. Yeah. <laughs> But not, in, not until... That was, that was once it left Green Boy. That's what it that's did. Right. You, know, you know, trust the Army guy to come up with details <laughs> like that. I mean, that's, okay. Last day of the year, December well, 31st. That's right. right. So yeah. then we go to the, um, the Virginia Peninsula in May and June. Here's one of the battles of that, uh, um, of that series of engagements in Virginia as McClellan tries to march toward Richmond from the water, from east to west, right? So tell us about some of that, John. Well, basically what what McClellan is is hoping to do is to do something that nobody else had tried. You know, up to this point, and and really later on too, the whole idea of the the Union Army was to move across and kind of almost like a frontal (laughs) attack. And McClellan thinks about it, and says, I've got a better idea. And he, he was always saying that. It didn't necessarily mean he was going to do anything about it, but he was always saying that. So the idea was, why not, instead of doing this direct attack, why not do a flanking movement? And when you think about that, that isn't all that unusual, I suppose, because at this time, people are still thinking of Jomini, and Germany's always talking about flanking movements and masses of troops against fractions of the enemy. So the idea is that, that the Union troops are going to go get on board ships. It's the biggest amphibious uh, uh, warfare of the, of the uh, Civil War and come down toward Fort Monroe and then come up again and hopefully be right there at Richmond. And once they're in that position then they'll be able to, you know, defeat the Confederates, capture Richmond, and we'll all live happily ever after. So it doesn't work out that way, but we'll, we'll, we'll let Craig talk about that. We have to just at least give Craig a chance to acknowledge a man he's written a biography of, Joe Johnston, on the left, who yields command, um, not yeah. voluntarily, to Robert yeah. E. Lee and sort of changes history. Actually, Harold, could you go back one slide sure. here just for a second? I, don't I want know. to make I'll a try. point, which is kind of interesting okay. about this campaign. This is called the Battle of Fair Oaks in this slide, in this image, contemporary image. What's interesting about that in terms of what we're going to focus on in a few minutes, the Battle of Antietam, is a lot of these battles had two names. Mm-hmm. This is the Battle of Fair Oaks, but it's also the Battle of Seven Pines if you're on the other side because the, uh, the North tended to name most of its battles around 
uh, a river or a mountain or some geographical care. Well, whereas the South named it after the nearest community. So this is the Battle of Seven Pines as far as Joe Johnson is concerned. This is where Joe Johnston, who is, now you can advance one, who is the guy we see on the left here, was going to hurl McClellan back from this amphibious end run. Uh, and it was a bloody-ish battle for 1862. I mean, there were a couple of thousand casualties. And in 1862, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Now, when we get to Antietam, we'll see it's really not a lot. But it had an impact on McClellan. Because after that battle, McClellan walked around that battlefield and saw the wounded and the dying on the field and kept muttering to himself, oh, my poor men, oh, my poor boys. And I think it tells us something about McClellan that we'll, we should remember when we talk about the Battle of Antietam is that he loved his army. And some say he loved his army too much. Mm-hmm. He built it into a wonderful military machine, but he was terrified to use it because of what might happen to it. And that's why the Battle of Fair Oaks, or the whole Peninsular Campaign, writ large, tells us a lot about McClellan as a commander. Could, we, could Harold, could you just flip back to that thing? There's something yeah, but I, let's not linger too we like much. That slide. Oh, we like that campaign. slide. We, that's a good let's, slide. Let's try to move on to Antietam. If you, if you notice, I, it just struck me. I never paid any attention to this before. But the you balloon? notice the balloon yeah. up in the upper left-hand corner? You know, Professor Lowe, the use of air power... Uh, not Navy power. Not yeah, I heard, it, was, I heard. It, was, it was air power. But that's just, just, just for reconnaissance. Yeah, that's not right. as a weapon, right. But yeah, that's, that's a good catch. That's, yeah. May I, may move, I move the slide? You, you yeah, move it along, along Harold. So, all right, Johnson is killed. We have to get past that. Well, and no, no, wounded. wounded, wounded, wounded. He'll be back. Oh, right. Yes, he will. Yeah. Late. He wouldn't so like that at all. Lee decides to change Confederate military strategy, not to defend but to attack. So how important is that? And Craig, you might want to just weigh in briefly on whether Johnston, you think, think would have done the same. Here's here's the question the Confederacy has to wrestle with. Is a long war a good thing or a bad thing for the Confederacy? Now, one argument is, look, we already have all the things we want to achieve. We have 750,000 square miles of territory. We already control that. We have an independent government, first in Montgomery and then in Richmond. We already have that. All we have to do now is not lose. On the other hand, the North has overwhelming superiority in manpower, material, industrial capacity, so that in a long war, if all of that comes into play, we'll get steamrollered. So do we just simply fight a defensive war, Joe Johnson's idea, or do we try to end this quickly before the North mobilizes all that great strength, Robert E. Lee? So there is a very stark difference. These two were classmates at West Point. They knew each other well and were friends but they disagreed entirely about the best way to achieve the objective that they shared, which is Confederate independence. So Lee says, no, time is of the essence. We have to end this thing. We have to win this thing. We need momentum. We've won a couple of battles now. We need to push this and finish it off. And that's why he invades the North. So he invades Maryland, probably starts in the wrong part of the state, right? Because he he is assuming that the slave-owning whites of Maryland will welcome him with open arms, but he goes, he starts a little far west, right? And it's mm-hmm. not exactly slaveholding territory, so he's disappointed at the response he gets. Yeah, I, I think that, that's, a, that's a good point. The thing that struck me, uh, maybe more than anything else, is as the Confederates move into Maryland, they start singing, Maryland, my Maryland. And they, the, the, the idea is Lee is supposed to issue an order 
basically saying, gee, we're really sorry what those Yankees have been doing to you, and we're here to, to pull you out of this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to their amazement, they get no, no response from the Maryland countryside. It's just, you know, the, the famous story, of course, of Barbara Fritchie uh, that comes up uh, regularly where she tells, basically tells Stonewall Jackson to take a hike. Uh, and nobody's talked to Stonewall. Or shoot if you must this old yeah, head. As yeah, shoot if you must this old gray head, but spare your country's flag, she said. She said. But so, you know, you have that, that kind of situation. But they're in Maryland. And the idea is, I think, I think Craig laid it out very well. I think they have, they have the concept that they're going to go on the offensive because that's what Lee thinks is the way to do it. And the best way to do it is to go into northern country and win a major battle. Imagine what we can do and what this will mean for us if we can go into a place like Maryland and win a big victory. And also, so that's, it's, a, it's a stepping stone to other parts. It's of a stepping, exactly, exactly. So yeah. Lee, you know, doesn't win adherence in Western Maryland particularly. He satisfies himself plundering apples. But here's a, <laughs> here's a major issue that has come up, especially um, in recent years. Is Lee, ultimately he's the commander of the army, is he responsible for atrocities against people of color? Did he re-enslave free blacks along the way, as has been said recently in the re-examination of, Lee's, of Lee's reputation that's been precipitated by the statue controversies? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a word, yes. Um, one of the important things to has to be kept in mind in talking about any campaign of the Civil War is the absolutely central role played by slavery. Mm-hmm. I know there's been an effort by some to say, oh, no, states' rights and so on, but we need to get back to first principles here. That Slavery caused the war. Absent slavery, there is no conflict. And slavery played a key role throughout the war. Just in talking about the reception he received in western Maryland, the way to think mm-hmm. of west Maryland in yeah. terms of demographics is not north to south, but east to west. The further east you go, especially out on what they call the Delmarva Peninsula over on the eastern shore, down the shore, as they say in Maryland, (laughs) that was plantation agriculture, and slavery was quite popular there and very successful, very remunerative. And had Lee been able to get there, he might have had an enthusiastic reception. But the Chesapeake Bay is in the way. So he had to cross into western Maryland, hill country, no slaves, no enthusiasm for the Confederacy. And that really is a measure of what's going on. Now, the slaves who did live in Western Maryland, not very many of them, had mostly run away and had, in fact, gone within Union lines in Harper's Ferry. 500 of them were inside Union lines at Harper's Ferry so that when Lee captured Harper's Ferry as part of this campaign, more about that later, I assume, um, those 500 slaves were retaken by the Confederates and they were driven, literally driven like cattle, back into the South and returned into slavery. Now, Lee was not there when that happened, but it happened under his command. And and it was a characteristic of wherever Confederate armies went, if they found free blacks who had ever been slaves, their view was, well, then you are an escapee, and we're taking you back to your proper station. Now, Lee didn't issue an order saying that this should be done, but it happened. His army did it. So I think the short answer has to be yes. And I think it fits in, too, because... You know, we're not going to talk about this today, but the lost cause idea, the idea that the Confederates had virtues, the Union were just, who knows what you could say about the, about the Union side. But the Confederates 
wouldn't have done this. It's certainly Robert E. Lee wouldn't have done it, but I think, I think he hit it right on the head. This was done under the overall command of Robert E. Lee. And if that had been done under the overall command of any other union general, he would have been blamed. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to say that Lee knew what, he, what was going on, I think, with that. Let's get to a moment of contingency, um, miraculous contingency. Hmm. And I apologize for this poor image. It's the best I could find of something called Order Number 191, um, about which General McClellan said, here is a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. Um, Now I know what to do, he said. So... Who wants to tell us about Order 191? Well, in your mind's eye, imagine Lee crossing the Potomac River at White's Ford into kind of the west, west central Maryland, and he heads northward, and the first city that he comes to is Frederick. Well, the Union Army is still in and around Washington, D.C., so they're further to the east. So he's in the central part of Maryland by himself and figuring out what to do. And one of the things he expected to happen was for Harper's Ferry to surrender. Mm-hmm. But the word came out from a fellow whose biography John has written, Henry Halleck, says, no, no, I want you to hang on to uh, Harper's Ferry. That'll, that'll make it difficult for the Confederates to sustain themselves in the field. So it's hanging out there like ripe fruit, and Lee wants to capture it. So to do that, he divides his army into four elements— He sends one back across the Potomac to come around from the Maryland side, one to loop around from the other side. So he's got Harper's Ferry surrounded on three sides, and he takes the rest of his army uh, further west. And he writes out all these orders. You, Longstreet, go there. You, Jackson, go there. You, Hill, go there. And he writes out 12 copies of this so that everybody has a copy of the orders and gives them to couriers, and they go off to deliver them. All but one. Mm -hmm. Because after they move off to follow those orders, here comes McClellan, slow as usual, but arriving eventually at Frederick and camping on the same ground where the Confederate Army had camped three days before. And two sergeants sitting out there under a tree eating one of these apples that they picked up on the side of the road, sees this package lying in the grass, picks it up, would have thrown it away, except there's three cigars in it. Right. Well, that's valuable stuff. So he pulls out the three cigars, and he doesn't have a match. So his buddy goes off to look for a match, and while he's waiting, he opens the piece of paper, and that's it. And in that piece of paper, it says where all the units of the Confederate Army are and where they've gone and when they'll be there and how many of them there are. And it goes up the line. The sergeant takes it to the captain, the captain to the colonel, the colonel to the provost. The provost takes it to McClellan, and then McClellan says, right. here is a piece of paper and so on. So, and he ought to have one. I mean, he he's got Lee's army right. divided all over the country. This is a miraculous opportunity, never to come again in the annals of warfare. And he, well, we'll see how he did with it as, we'll we, well, as just, we go on to... I was just going to say that I think, I think the, the, the part, the rest of the story, so to speak, is McCullen's personality that you talked about earlier. Because any, it would seem to me any general, any, most generals would have gotten that and said, oh my God, look at this, I've got this guy's battle plan. How can I not follow <laughs> up on it? But he doesn't follow up on it. And I think one of the problems too is, is he's taking, taking advice from another individual, this fellow named Henry Halleck, 
who also wants to be cagey, who says, well, we've got to be, watch what we're doing because this could be a trap right. that the Confederates Fake news. Fake news, yeah. <laughs> it's not that he doesn't react to it. He doesn't react to it immediately. Right. This is yeah. characteristic yeah. of right. the right. I mean, right. theoretically, he should have said, wow, Boom. we know where they are. Let's go. No, let's wait six hours, and now yeah, it's nightfall, so here are some new orders. You can move in the morning. So 18 hours, hours pass yeah. between the time yeah. he gets this order and the time the first soldier steps out on the road. Yeah. So... Three famous elements of this one incredibly bloody day. Yeah. Right? The cornfield, the bloody lane, and Burnside's Bridge. We should just briefly talk about. I mean, this is the bloodiest day in American military history. More casualties than the first day of D-Day, right? Well, first Four ca- times more casualties than D-Day. And then what is it? More casualties than what? The War of 1812, the Mexican War, and the Spanish-American War. The American mm-hmm. Revolution. Yeah. The Quasi-War, the Barbary Wars, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. The entire war. More killed on one day. The Battle of Antietam. No. So, Cornfield. Cornfield. You got a map? I don't know. Well, the corn- Later. The cornfield is, is, a, is a field, is a cornfield. And it's ripe. It's <laughs> high. The corn it's is ready, as high it's ready as to be picked, side, right? right? Uh, it's about 24 acres, roughly. Uh, the idea is Hooker. You remember fighting Joe Hooker? The idea, well, let me back up a little bit. When we think about what McClellan comes up with his battle plan, the idea is, is that the Union troops under Hooker are going to hit the Confederate left side, the, uh, the, the group under uh, Burnside, another group of uh, Union soldiers, are going to hit on the right side. And the idea is the middle will be collapsed and they'll be able to rush through through and all the rest. So Not a, not a bad plan. No, it's not a bad plan at all if it had been followed. <laughs> and if McClellan, I think, if McClellan had used everything available to him. I, I, the one thing I think we can say about Hooker is Hooker maybe comes up with one of the best lines of of the battle uh, where he says something like uh, that the cornfield after the battle looked like it had been absolutely cut straight. That's how the bullets and that's how the shells, et cetera, had gone through. And the Union soldiers charging through when they fall, fall in formation. That's how awful the situation was. But so the, the cornfield is, is any, anything like that is a problem when you're trying to keep people in line and when you're trying to get them to do certain things and then to have this kind of thing happen when you're already worried that you, it's not going to work necessarily. Uh, and, and in fact, what happens, the battle goes back and forth and back and forth between more or less the middle and the cornfield and some of the woods, etc. But in the meantime, we've got Burnside attacking on the famous Burnside Bridge. We'll get to that picture. But imagine the horror of troops in corn stalks that are higher than they are. Yes, right. Panic and the lack of ability to know exactly where you're going. Horrible. And the bloody lane, Craig, worth a minute on that? Well, I'm sorry to be a, a... pedant about this, but the map, I think, would help show where... I don't know where it is, so we're going to have to get to it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to do that? No, we're not going to do the map. I can't. Imagine in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) I should definitely have put it first, but... 
Fourteenth Ro- time he's brought. This remember up. when Robert E. Lee found out, which he did, by which the way, did, that yeah. McClellan had his plans. Oh my gosh! Well, this that that's it. That's it. I got to get out. I got to go. <coughs> I've got eighteen thousand men. That's all he had. And here comes McClellan with about eighty-five thousand men. I cannot stay. I got to go. So he's heading back to cross, recross the Potomac River and go back into Virginia. He hates to do it because then it's obviously this is going to be a a failed invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets back to Sharpsburg, Maryland. I've mentioned earlier how each battle has a different name. The Confederates always call this the Battle of Sharpsburg. It was the Federals who called it the Battle of Antietam, named for the river, the Confederates naming for the town. So he's in Sharpsburg when he gets a message from A.P. Hill, from Stonewall Jackson, actually, that, that Harper's Ferry has surrendered. It's about to fall, and he'll be able to bring up the rest of the troops. And Lee says, well, no, maybe this will work out after all. Maybe I can fight. This is not a bad place to fight. So he arranges his troops around Sharpsburg in kind of a semicircle with an anchored on a river on both sides. But he's also got his back to a river with only one line of retreat. So he'd better hold. And he's got to wait for the rest of the troops to come up from from Harper's Ferry. Do you think he can wait with McClellan approaching? Oh, sure. sure. Of course he can. So McClellan comes on the other side of the Antietam Creek and sees him and thinks, oh, Lee is there. He must have at least 120,000 men. He has about 30,000, 25 to 30,000. So I'm going to come up with this plan that we've discussed. I'm going to attack on the right with Hooker, in the center with Sumner, who's Harold's favorite general. He'll tell you why. And then on the left with Burnett, sequentially across the front in a, in a, serial attack. Why? Because he believes he's outnumbered, or he's convinced himself he's outnumbered. If he's got 85,000 men and the other guy's got 25,000 men, he could just yell, go. (laughs) That's all the plan he needs. But here's an amazing statistic about this battle. And he's got Alan Pinkerton, who is feeding him fake information about the numbers. Pinkerton was clever enough to tell the boss what he knows the boss wants to hear. Right. Can you imagine that happening in the United States today? No. (laughs) And here's an amazing statistic about this battle. At no moment in this battle were more than 20,000 Union soldiers engaged in combat at any time. So instead of going all at once, he goes serially. Hooker in the cornfield. Devastating. Horrifying. Terrible losses. Uh, Then... Bullhead Sumner comes in, and I'll let Harold tell you why he's... Oh, he, uh, the, uh, he was one of Lincoln's bodyguards on the inaugural journey, and so named, they say, because a bullet had bounced off his head in the Mexican War, doing absolutely no damage. So Edwin became Bullhead. Right. So Sumner, he, he's next, but the problem is he doesn't start until Hooker's pretty much done. Had they gone at the same time, yeah. obviously there would have been a different outcome. Yeah. But then he goes in, and he bumps up against this piece of geography known as the Bloody Lane. It's a sunken road. It's a wagon road in the soft dirt that has worn away a deep trough with a rail fence along one side of it. So it's a ready-made World War I-style entrenchment. And the Confederates, outnumbered as they are, have placed themselves there so that when the Federals come over this little rise, they can just mow them down as they do. And just like the cornfield, there's... Rank after rank of dead soldiers. And it's amazing that the Union troops, as badly led as they are, sacrifice themselves so profligately against these defensive troops. And yet, and yet, they do break through. They actually break through the bloody lane. They push Lee's men back onto the outskirts of Sharpsburg. Lee is back on his heels. 
he's, he's an extremist and he knows it. By probably by 10.30 in the morning, uh, he's losing and losing badly. And then McClellan sends in Burnside. Burnside. And here's this beautiful, beautiful man-made wonder over the creek there, this beautiful stone bridge that Burnside defends yeah. or tries to defend. Try. Well, well, back and forth, back and forth. Try back and forth. And, and the, the, maybe the sad thing and maybe the, what epitomizes this entire battle is that the Confederates hold back Burnside with, what is it, about 500 men maybe, something like that. That's all. Just 500 men are holding Burnside from getting across that bridge and doing what what uh, what he's supposed to be uh, what he's supposed to be doing, but the the point is the other point is is that they discover after a while they don't even need this bridge particularly because they can wade across the water and get there <laughs> faster than they could over the bridge with these people holding them back. So you, what you have and meanwhile is it about twenty four thousand men that uh, that uh, uh, McClellan has in reserve that just now he ought to be sending right up the middle, through the middle, breaking through, and then you know what, what you do once you break through. But he doesn't do it. Because I think part of the, part of the issue with McClellan is he sees what is going on. He can't believe that he's going to lose any men. He shouldn't lose any men, despite the fact that in any battle you're going to lose men. But he shouldn't lose any, and the result is he holds them back. And I think uh, Craig made a good point. There's only very few Union troops ever are fighting at the same time. A fifth of the force, right? Yeah. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. In all fairness to, to poor old Burnside at the bridge, by the way, that those 500 Georgians, it was two regiments yeah, of Georgians, <clears throat> and they were, they were on high ground. If you ever visit the battlefield, which mm-hmm. I do recommend, yeah. it's a wonderful visit, on that high ground behind it, it's an old abandoned uh, quarry. So it's got built-in, you know, uh, not entrenchments, but, but pillboxes almost. And so 500 men defining, uh, defending that position. And, and to cross that bridge, you have to walk along the side of the creek, turn directly toward them and go over that bridge. And it's very difficult to do. And although the stream is only about 30 yards wide and it's only about five feet deep at its deepest point, so you could wade it. Wading a stream like that under fire is difficult, too. They finally did get across at a a ford, downriver Snavely's Ford, which is about a mile and a half Mm -hmm. downriver. They did get across there. That uncovered the bridge, and they finally get across, but not until late in the afternoon. So that's a critical issue. But again, this doesn't happen until after First Hooker, and then Sumner have already shot their bolt, and now here comes Burnside. And he does get across. So Lee retreats eventually knowing he can't win this battle, but, but sort of minimizing his, I guess, minimizing his losses, getting out while he's got an army. Well, now you're talking about his retreat back across the Potomac? Yeah. Let's save that, if that's okay. Well, I think we need to get out of, we need to get... I, I think there's a critical moment here that has to be addressed. Yeah, go ahead. And that is that the sun sets with his army back to the river, bloodied, wounded, ready for the coup de grace. As John says, McClellan won't send in his reserves. He holds them back, and the sun goes down. Sun comes up the next morning. Now what? Lee's still there. Okay. The opportunity is still Still there. McClellan still doesn't move. The two armies sit there. They look at each other all day long, and Lee says, I'm not going. 
are you coming? <laughs> Sun goes down again. Lee seems to have said, okay, I've made my point. Now no. I'll go. Okay. So that whole day, the next day, the 18th of September, could have been the day that ended the Civil War. But it wasn't because McClellan wouldn't do it. And, I think, and I think, too, to add to what you, what you said, McClellan doesn't recognize any of this. Even later on, when he's, what we'll, we'll talk about later, when he's writing to his wife, Ellen, I mean, he's, he's blaming everybody There's, but himself. I know, we did the map. My map, my now. map. My here, map. This there is, she is this right is, there. Point back, it's over here. Oh, it's over here. <laughs> this, is, this is McClellan and his beloved wife, to whom he shared immediately after the battle his boast that he had saved the Union, history, uh, everything. Um, he was convinced that he'd won a huge victory. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Lincoln is not. Well, and, and she, she's a very interesting person. She absolutely idolizes uh, Mac. And some of the letters that he writes to her are, are, are some of the letters that we use to point out just how weak a general he was. And the ironic thing, I think, is she didn't have to have those letters published. She could have held on to them, never brought them out, and it wouldn't have worked, worked to the same degree. There's a wonderful uh, book on, on the wives of generals by uh, uh, Candy Hooper. You know, oh, she's Candace got, Hooper, yeah. Yeah, Candace Hooper, and she's got a chapter on that, and she talks about that if anybody messed up McClellan's reputation, it was his wife, even right. though she thought she was doing the best. Well, Stephen Sears eventually would have gotten to the letters. He would have gotten to right. yeah, That's true, yeah. So, that's true. So, well, not only is she, did she publish them sort of ill-advisedly, the fact that he was so incredible, I know we can't imagine this, but was so boastful yeah, yeah. Uh, and so inaccurate about his triumph is... You sound like a United Nations, by yeah. the way. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. They're <laughs> laughing. They're That's laughing, right, right. yeah. So what's the what is what is the reaction? I mean, does, does, oh, yeah. does the North buy the idea that there's been a huge success? Oh. And Jim McPherson, of course, who we all adore and miss, um, wrote a terrific book about Antietam in which he makes the case that Antietam was the most important battle of the war because of what it generated in terms of emancipation and other actions by Lincoln. And, yeah. uh, but... Um, is it? I mean, it, it seems to be a draw and a lost opportunity. Well, as you know, and, and I think it's important to understand, Lincoln had written the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which I know Harold wants to talk about here in a few minutes. Um, and and he was advised that it's not a good idea to do this now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. After the, the uh, failures on the peninsula, it will look like, as Seward called it, the last shriek on the retreat will look desperate to European eyes. And Europe was watching this campaign very closely. We know because almost simultaneous with the battle, the French and the British were both considering not necessarily recognition of the Confederate, but offering their good offices to call an armistice, and they would negotiate a truce, which, of course, meant Southern independence and the perpetuation of slavery. So should the battle go the other way, uh, that would have been disastrous. Now, you asked the question, was it a Union victory? Um, and Lincoln decided it was enough, enough of a yeah. Union victory. It was not the Union victory. It ought to have been, given that they had overwhelming numerical superiority, given that they had the plans of the enemy, given that the enemy was divided all over the map. The opportunity was so great. 
But if McClellan fumbled it, um, he didn't fumble it enough to lose the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fumbled and you it do make the great point about September 18th, which yeah. is yeah. total stasis and inaction yeah. and inertia. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. He, he, Lincoln gets the news, um, goes back to writing the evolving draft of the proclamation. He does take four or five days to call his cabinet back into session. And it's very interesting because Craig mentioned that Seward had objected to its being issued in July, as did Salmon Chase, a big abolitionist, and everyone else in his cabinet. Presidents really couldn't act in those days totally against their cabinet advice. So Lincoln gets to this cabinet meeting with this document. You see he had pasted portions of it from a federal law so he could save some writing time. And he started the meeting by saying, um, I, have made a, I made a pact with God that if we drove Lee out of Maryland, that was his, that was that was his level of judgment. If we drove Lee out of Maryland, I should free the slaves, by the way, his phrase. Um, and that's what he believed he was doing. Um, so therefore, I want no advice from you at all because <laughs> it's between me and my maker. And he read this document aloud, which is, by the way, owned by you guys. It's owned by the state of New York, um, purchased by the legislature yeah. in 1865 in one of the last triumphs of the New York State Legislature. <laughs> <laughs> So he brings the cabinet together. Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew. Um, <laughs> brings the cabinet together, and uh, and uh, as he says, the rebel army is now driven out, and I am going to um, keep my promise. And it is a legalistic document, but it gives the South, the Confederacy, 100 days' notice, mm-hmm. quite by chance, I think, mm-hmm. um, to return to the natural order of things in the Union, else their property would be confiscated. So all of that happened out of sort of a... And I think that's why Jim, who titled his book, Jim McPherson, uh, whom we mentioned because he used to sit with us up here on the stage. Some of you will remember uh, events we had with Jim. In his book, uh, Crossroads of Freedom, says, this was the moment in the war that mattered because look what happened. Uh, Yes, it it stalled uh, the momentum of the Confederacy, but it also triggered the Emancipation Proclamation and stopped the movement in Europe for recognition of the Confederacy. So all of these things came together to endow the Battle of Antietam, which tactically was not all that decisive. Could have been, but was not, but was strategically right. very important. But I think, I think it's also fair to say that at that time, today we say brilliant move on, on Lincoln's part, but I'm not so sure at that time uh, that the Emancipation Proclamation was greeted with open arms by the troops or by the generals. or by, They thought this was a gigantic right. mistake. Especially George B. McClellan. Exactly. Who is still sitting in command. Yes, yes. And, and Lincoln yes. now is urging him... As the cartoonist noticed, urging him to follow up his so-called victory. Um, And eventually, and there are rumors that McClellan will not fight to free African-Americans. He will only fight as he signed up to fight. To free the union, to, to yes, preserve the, the union, union yeah. and to restore the federal That's authority. That's a classic photo, this one, by the way. So Lincoln, yeah. this is one of the great photographs of the war. And it's near or on the Antietam battlefield. 
It's October 4th, as I recall, 1862. It's a totally staged photo because McClellan's headquarters is in a house right behind this tent. Yeah. But they pose in a tent. I do think that McClellan must have worn a kepi or something because he's like a little sunburned more than Lincoln. Lincoln has put his top hat on the table, you see, mm-hmm. and the table is draped with an American flag. Uh, there is yeah. some... You think McClellan's sitting on a book here? He looks a little taller than usual. He's yeah. sitting, sitting on the high chair there. Yeah, must yeah. Be. And this is a serious discussion. I mean, it is a photo opportunity to be sure, and it continues. Look at the size of Lincoln, and you may see the actual house peeking between the tents there. Right above his hat. And yeah. there are some famous people. It's actually a wider photograph, but... Uh, and Lincoln's, you know, usual bad posture, his knees slouching and shoulders rounded. But I don't, I don't see how McClellan, he's got to strain his neck to look up at him. He's got to, yeah, yeah. And what is Lincoln telling him at this moment? Lincoln, well, basically Lincoln says, you got to do something. Exactly. You got to do something. Doesn't he say this is McClellan's body? This isn't the Army of the Potomac. This is McClellan's Oh, that's body. a great line. That's he's, a great line. He's touring up on, on yes. the hill. On the yes. hill. Yes. He, yeah. he wants yeah. to meet the troops. What's the mood of the Army? talks to them because one of the fears he had is the army more loyal to McClellan than they are to Abraham Lincoln, especially with the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Are they dissatisfied with where they are? There was some talk among McClellan's staff that the army should reorient itself and march to Washington and replace this tyrant in the White House. Never went very far, but the very fact that those thoughts were articulated, Lincoln wanted to take the temperature of the army. So he's writing about looking, he's up on a hill, looking down with who is it? Who's the Hatch. Yes. Hatch. And, and he says, you know what that is down there? And he says, well, mm-hmm. yes, sir, Mr. President. That's the Army of the Potomac. And Lincoln said, nope, that's McClellan's bodyguard. Yeah. Well, and then also what the, the other famous thing about where when later on when, uh, when uh, McClellan says to Lincoln, I, you can't do anything. My horses are so <laughs> fatigued. And Lincoln responds, what have your horses done in the last, you know, so since, so, since the Battle of Antietam. Since the Battle of Antietam, to be fatigued over anything. So I, Lincoln understands. Lincoln's figuring it out. Yeah, he's figuring, he's figuring it out. By the way, he out. couldn't spell fatigue. It's one of the words that he couldn't yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. So a little sidelight. Um, also, this visit um, inspires one of the great libels against Lincoln oh, yeah. that yeah. is later used in the 1864 presidential campaign. And that is that this jokester of a president um, was walking amid the dead and wounded of Antietam and asked the uh, U.S. Marshal of the District of Columbia, his occasional bodyguard and lifelong friend, Ward Hill Lamon, to sing a comic song for relief. And um, it was published again and again in New York Democratic newspapers in 1864, prompting Lincoln to write a letter to the editor protesting, a brilliant letter that he asked Lamont to sign. Sign, yes. Even though it's yes. clearly Lincoln style saying, I never sang on a grave that had, near a grave that had not already been wet twice with rain. Just beautifully put. He never sent it, but, nor did he ask for a comic song. But he did ask Lamont, whether well advised or not, on the way back from this gloomy inspection, although he didn't see any wounded on the battlefield, no, he had yeah. long gone, to sing sad songs. But, and Lamon had serenaded him all the way to Washington yeah. from Illinois. So. But, but the other part that's so intriguing, too, which I think tells you something about McClellan, the story also says that McClellan 
When Lincoln said that, said, oh my gosh, no, Mr. Lincoln, you can't desecrate the graves of our fallen heroes, et cetera, et cetera. But again, Lemon says that never happened. Lincoln says that never happened. But you do have that. So this is one of those issues, I think, that comes out of this battle which has a tremendous impact then later on in the 1864 uh, presidential election. This, this cartoon was published by a New York newspaper. And what I found, always found odd about it is that everyone in the cartoon, except for Lincoln, seems to look like General McClellan. I think that's not <laughs> accidental. Here's General McClellan. Here's General McClellan without a uniform. Here's General McClellan. And Ward Hill Lamon was actually six foot four. And yes. he's dressed like General McClellan, crying well, there in the... Well, and, and I thought that that was General McClellan. No, it's Lamon. It, it says Marshall. It's Marshall. It says Marshall. Sing me Picayune Butler or I something else funny. I didn't read that, but yeah. obviously. But, I mean, it, it looked to me like that was another example of where McClellan was straightening out this screwed-up president. McClellan, I just want to just show you a few quick pictures before we get to your questions. McClellan is lionized early in the war and on through um, Antietam period. He's seen as a gallant hero. Um, He was called the Little Napoleon, and I'm not showing a Napoleon here because just promiscuously, it is a a famous painting of of Napoleon, um, and it inspired a knockoff. Keep your eye on Napoleon there in his gesture. So he actually transforms into, into Napoleon. And, of course, there's another transformation, 1864. McClellan is now out. He's fired a couple of times, and he becomes the Democratic candidate for president. And now northern cartoonists are hitting. It's McClellan offering a piece, an olive branch, literally, to Jefferson Davis, uh, who is subjugating... Uh, an African-American Union soldier, or Lincoln's plan, which is to subjugate the tattered and battered Jefferson Davis and elevate, even if he's speaking in minstrel talk, to elevate the Mm African-American soldier. And then, of course, your man saves Lincoln's cookies on Election Day, you might say, right? Yes, that, I'm glad you He has to always up. get in a plug for Sherman, so I'm giving him a softball. This is my, my only chance, right, in this whole thing. But it was Sherman's victory at Atlanta, uh, which came at the opportune time during that, uh, during that 1864 election, which made it possible uh, for Lincoln, I think, to be uh, elected. Some historians say no, some historians say yes, but I, I think it, it's pretty obvious that that was a major major point uh, in the war, and we won't even talk about U.S. Grant That's and the role that he played in all of this, too. By the way, typical of McClellan, he wanted the convention to be as late as possible. Yes, right, right. If they had nominated him in July or August, he might have gotten some momentum together. Instead, the yeah, nominating convention point. was the day that, or the day after Sherman took Atlanta. That's, that's so it was point. not exactly an ideal... <laughs> opportunity. He was so, not a great politician. No, no. Or well, we can argue about the generalship. <laughs> Let, let's let's take some of your some of your questions. We have ten or fifteen minutes. Um, would McClellan have served as commander of the Union forces longer, or even for the rest of the war, had he been more successful at Antietam? Well, he was he was there. 
at the beginning. And let's, let's just, for argument's sake, follow the, the thrust of that question. And he wins Antietam. And he wins another battle. He wins another battle. Lincoln's not going to say, sorry, McClellan, you're, you're done. Because he's winning. But the problem is, in reality, he's not winning. He's not doing what he, what he has to do. And I'm joking about uh, Ulysses S. Grant, but that was one of the things that Lincoln liked about Grant. Grant said to him, don't worry, Mr. President, I'm going to do what has to be done, and if I mess up, it's on me. It's not going to be on you. That's not what McClellan said. McClellan always said, I did everything possible in this battle or in this particular instance, and you screwed up. You people in Washington are not giving me what I need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you do have that. So I will just note that you broke your vow about not mentioning I, Grant. I did, Very but I did. I did. I, I worked on it. Craig, yeah. what do you think? I think that... Uh, what Lincoln wanted was victories. Yeah, give, give, yeah. give me victory. Uh, and he said this to every general. He said it to Hooker. He yeah, said it yeah, to, yeah, good point. of course, he said it to Grant as well. There, I said Grant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in particular of McClellan, he, he famously once in response to some of his own advisors said, how can you tolerate this man saying such terrible things about you? You know he calls you the original gorilla and says you're stupid <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and a moron and, and it's your fault that he didn't win the, on the Peninsula campaign. How, why do you tolerate that from him? And Lincoln said, I would hold McClellan's horse if he would give me victories. Yeah. There's a great story when he came to yeah, visit McClellan yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, McClellan was out supposedly surveying the troops. This was earlier, was before the Battle of Antietam. And McClellan was out visiting, and, and Lincoln had come in and was to told his, to by his home. Steward to his home. To his home. Yeah. And he said, well, the, uh, the general's not at home. And Lincoln said, I'll wait. He went into the parlor and sat with his hat on his knee for most of an hour, 45 minutes. And finally, McClellan came home into the parlor door. And, of course, Lincoln can hear this from the waiting room. And he says, sir, the president of the United States is waiting for you. And McClellan said, Tell him I've gone to bed. Well, he actually yeah. goes upstairs. Went upstairs. Clanking, goes upstairs yeah. clanking his clanking sword and his spurs, spurs right? Up and went to bed. Uh, and, and Lincoln said, well, that's all right. He's tired. He's, he's, he's working tired, hard. Yeah. I'll, I'll, can you imagine? I think he was actually at a wedding, by the way. He was at a wedding. That's yeah. true. That's so point. he wasn't working. He wasn't he even wasn't out respecting the troops. That, but, but what that demonstrates is how much Lincoln would tolerate if the general would provide victories. Everybody told him this was the most brilliant general in the army. And so yeah, the answer yeah. to the question yeah. is, if McClellan had given him victories, Lincoln would have done whatever it was necessary to provide him with reinforcements and troops and sang his praises if he gave him victories. Okay, I'm going to be the fly in the ointment, and I'm going to be the dissenting voice. Okay. I don't think Lincoln could have kept McClellan on that much longer because McClellan opposed emancipation. Mm. And, you know, the time for recruiting Democrats as generals in order to keep the entire Union fighting the Confederacy was coming to an end. He wanted tough guys like Sherman and Grant who had no visible politics. Grant was a Democrat, a Republican. He was everybody's choice. Um, I I don't think he could have stayed with McClellan. Let me ask John a question. He's our Sherman guy here. How enthusiastic was Sherman about emancipation? He was not enthusiastic at all. In fact, he... But he didn't pronounce it to the commander-in-chief. He didn't say, but he... Well, he did. When Lincoln said, look, Sherman, help help me out here. I need some help. I need to... You need to use these black troops. 
And he basically said, no, I don't think so. I think it's, but then he did go along. Right. That's true. And but remember, black troops comes with a final emancipation. Right. McClellan is opposing preliminary. But I take that point. That's not yeah. a bad point well, with Sherman. But I think, too, it, let, let's just, this, this brings a whole other issue in, into it. Let's just say that McClellan keeps winning. And he keeps... It's hard which to is fathom. a great leap of it's faith. A hard, it's, it's hard to fade. I know that. But we'll just to get into, into Harold's uh, idea there. And he keeps, you know, this keeps going on. And he wins, but he's opposed to emancipation. What, what's going to happen then? Will the war end before the slaves are free? Right. It gets a little counterfactual. But if McClellan it's, is in charge of Fredericksburg and somehow wins and the Confederates right. sue for peace, as the term goes, yes. then the emancipation doesn't go into doesn't effect. Doesn't go into effect. If it's yeah. between December 13th and December 31st. Right. So it's all very, very... very okay, let's do another question here if we can. Um, what role did our... I have no idea what the answer to this is. What role did artillery play in, at Antietam? Artillery? I have no idea. Yeah, it, 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 God, it, it's a very idea? honest... A, a little bit. It little does bit, play okay. a role. I mean, the Confederates had artillery in what's called the Westwoods. There was a small hill yeah, yeah. Uh, behind the Westwoods. And that attack, that initial attack in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, coming through the, uh, the cornfield, was enfiladed by artillery from the West Woods. That's why they had to capture the West Woods and then could counterattack through the West Woods, and it just became a horrible melee. But it was because of the artillery uh, there at the cornfield that 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 initial attack was was stalled and misdirected. Um, Had it not been there, it's not impossible that the troops could have stormed past. There's a little church, uh, a little white yeah. washed church on the battlefield right between the Westwoods and the cornfield called the Dunker Church. They were called Dunkers because they believed in full immersion baptism. Uh, but it was such a landmark on the field. It's still there. Um, and, and everything was uh, sort of oriented around that. And it was just behind that that this artillery unit uh, played an important role in the battle. So it, it did something. Well, let me ask you, because I, I, I hadn't even thought about this before, but was, does the artillery play any other role any place else? I, I recognize what you're saying. No. No, that's... No, yeah, that's, it's an infantry battle. Other yeah, than that. that's right. Okay. So 1864, um, McClellan, who is often parodied with a, by show, showing him with the prop of a shovel suggesting he, would pref- he prefers digging entrenchments to actually fighting. Lincoln is reminded of him as a little joke and, of course, wins the election of 1864. And in the 1890s, as one of our questioners pointed out, Antietam becomes one of the first Union battlefields to be preserved. Right. And There's a sunken road, by the way. That, and there, that right, yeah. and yeah. that is the sunken road. And yeah, here is... That beautiful bridge, which is... And, and can I just note that tree that you can see just on the extreme oh, yeah, right yeah, of the yeah, image yeah, there yeah, yeah. was a small sapling in 1862, yeah. and it's called the witness tree. It's still there. Yes. there. Yeah, it's still, still there. Right. right. So maybe... Um, but you also might maybe just say how you can see here, I think, that Antietam Creek is not very right. wide. I, I mean, think the print had it pretty accurately. They yeah, had artists yeah. on the scene, and it was... they. Produced rather primitive interpretations, but it, yeah. it, it's not a bad... The prince of the day got the bridge pretty yeah. pretty well. And I'm going to have to correct myself. I see that this photo is taken from the Confederate side. That's so the, the elevated the ground where the quarry is. You can see why the Georgians had a good line of shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a the good point. The witness tree is the one on the left, right. just as you begin to cross the bridge okay. from the Union side. Yeah, so. right. anyway. and, uh, is- and Tatum also... 
transformed public opinion in a way because Alexander Gardner, working for Matthew Brady, came down to Sharpsburg uh, very soon after the battle and took these horrifying photographs of bloated corpses um, um, on the field. They were, whoops, they were exhibited uh, in New York, prompting a a beautifully written New York Times review, which I want to quote from. Um, This is what the Times said about the pictures of the dead. Until this time, the paper said, the dead of the battlefield come up to us very rarely, even in dreams. We recognize the battlefield as a reality, but it stands as a remote one, like a funeral next door. Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us the terrible reality and earnestness of war. If he has not brought the bodies and laid them in our dooryards and along our streets, he has done something very like it. And with that grim reality, I'd like to thank you again for joining us and hope we see you with the next Civil War. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History or visit us at nyhistory.org.